good morning, afternoon, evening, and good night. It's the EIC Podcast. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Amherst Wire, Jonathan Kerma. Today I have a very special guest with me, sleep doctor, Dr. Rebecca Spencer. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Awesome to hear that. So today we're going to be talking about um, your two latest series that you're going to be featured in, um, one entitled Babies, the other Masters of Mysteries of Sleep. But before we do that, I guess we're going to kind of go over uh, what you do here at UMass as a sleep doctor. I don't know if that's the correct term. Um, would you be able to correct me if that's incorrect? Yeah, I'm a sleep doctor, but not the medical kind. So we study sleep in the lab. Um, we do a lot of different studies of what healthy sleep looks like for the most part um, and how sleep changes across the lifespan. Okay. Um, and what got you into studying uh, sleep? Well, in some ways it was an accident. It came okay. about from the other kind of work that we were doing. Somebody um, made the front of Time Magazine showing that sleep was important to learning and that's what I was interested in. And then I got really interested in how sleep would be important to learning. What's the brain doing while we're sleeping? And um, the story goes from there. Okay, well, I think that kind of jumps to one of my questions I wanted to have later. Uh, what are your theories on you know, dreaming? Do you, do you study that by chance or no? We do kind of accidentally. Okay. Uh, it's hard to study sleep without thinking about dreaming. Um, and so we have ideas that when what we think sleep is doing is processing your memories. And so dreams in some ways are a side effect of processing memories, but I think they're an important side effect. I think they're a side effect that results in processing of emotions and processing, um, allowing us to be create more creative. Um, so I think dreams come about from combining different memories. So you might have a memory tonight of me talking to you about sleep, and then mm -hmm. you're going to integrate it with other memories you have of when you learned about sleep. And if you combine those things, you will get crazy combinations, and we might call those a dream if you um, mix them up and I wake you up in the middle of the night. Okay. So I, not to spend too much time on dreaming, so what about like the dreams that are kind of just not of this reality? Would you say those are still based upon memory for the most part? And it's like, how does that come to be? I think that's a great question. So in some ways I would say, I would probably ask you a lot of more questions to see, um, even as crazy as they can be, there's probably some ounce of reality. There's some movie you watch that you got the crazy pieces from, mm -hmm. um, or there's some pieces of reality mixed in. Um, so I would probably start by first seeing if that's truly the case, that there's nothing grounded in reality in those dreams. And then if that's the case, and I do think there are certainly some that are just really, really out there, um, that just challenges our theory of what we're thinking about for where dreams are coming from um, and gives us ideas of what, what could be happening beyond just reactivating our pure memories and getting those creative networks flowing. Um, and again, I think that that is a great um, side effect of dreaming is how creative we can get. And people have come up with great inventions and scientific solutions just from having a really good dream. Mm, interesting. Um, and one thing earlier you mentioned when talking about dreaming was the ties between sleep and memory. Would you be able to kind of elaborate on that um, and why there's a connection between sleep and memory? Yeah, this is the really cool part, if you ask me. Um, so, and we've spent a lot of time thinking about this, but one way to think about it is while you're in sleep, particularly the early part of sleep, what your brain is doing is taking that video of your day and putting it on replay. And so we know that neurons in your head that were firing as you learn something, they're firing the exact same song uh, while you're sleeping. And in doing so, it makes you remember those things more. So if you think of it as putting on replay, 
um, some scene of your favorite movie and you watch that scene over and over again, that's going to result in remembering the words of the scene better. And your brain's essentially doing that while you sleep, meaning while you sleep, you're actually learning. And so when we pull all-nighters before exams, it might not be the wisest thing to do because, strangely enough, sleep is actually helping you get ready for that exam college students listen up on that yeah i agree get your get your sleep in um and so how does the amount of needed sleep change with age and how does that tie back to uh memory this is a great question too so i think that when how much you sleep is probably related to how much you're learning and so if you think about it as a little kid and even go down to the infants they're just constantly learning i mean the color of grass is brand new to a newborn. Um, the um, way leaves move in the trees is still new in infancy. And so as every day, it's just something very brand new. And that happens to be when you're sleeping the most. I mean, infants sp- spend the majority of their day-, day sleeping. And as you grow, you know, you're still learning. And so early childhood, you still see a lot of sleep. And then that, can, that starts to go down. Um, versus, And you'll see in our adolescents or young adults, our college students, they should still be sleeping it's hard to make single recommendations, but still sleeping, say, nine or so hours at night. And then as you get into adulthood, you'll see less and less sleep. And then as you get into older adulthood, you know, if you think about your grandparents and how they're sleeping, for the most part, and there's exceptions to everything, um, they're they're sleeping less. And so you'll see grandma and grandpas that are sleeping, say, just six hours a night and sometimes even less, and their sleep's very fragmented. And it's possible that's because they're just accumulating less, um, less new things every day. So that's one possibility that um, our learning, that learning is actually determining sleep time in that way. Um, But it brings up a different question that you didn't ask, but I'm going to give you the answer to anyways. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the question of how much sleep does a person need? Um, So infants sleep a lot. Young adults sleep, say, nine uh, hours. Older adults sleep, say, five hours, but we actually don't know how to measure sleep needs. So that's kind of the dirty skeleton in the sleep closet is that we actually don't know how to measure how much somebody, how much sleep a person needs. Mm. So when I give you these numbers, that's actually based on times that people do sleep as opposed to how much they need to sleep. Um, So when you see an older adult only sleeping five hours at night, is that because they're learning less and so they need less? Or is it because something biologically has changed in the brain and they can't sleep enough and they can't sleep more? And we actually don't know the answer to that. And I think it's the, you know, the biggest question out there is what determines how much we sleep? And, and strangely enough, in our sleep field, we actually don't know exactly how to measure that. Okay. I remember uh, last, last year when we did an interview for the, the Valley Advocate, you mentioned to find your ideal sleep time, you t- take like a two-week vacation and kind of measure how your sleep goes then. Would you still say that's kind of an accurate measure to find your own sleep Yes, clock? and it's, it's the advice that people love to hear. <laughs> In order to know how much you need to sleep, my advice is go take a two-week vacation. Who's going to argue with that? And then you can know that so it takes two weeks because you really have to wash out all of that sleep deprivation, right? So the beginning, you're going to sleep a lot just simply because you're catching up on lost sleep. And then after a while, you'll settle into a sleep schedule, and that would tell you about how much you personally need because that sleep need is certainly genetically determined. So even though we don't know exactly how to measure it, we do know that there's long sleepers and short sleepers, and that's determined by our genetics. So if your parents were long sleepers, you're probably a long sleeper. Um, And so the best way to really hone in on what your need is is to go on this two-week vacation. Okay, okay. And another thing I remember when we talked about last year was uh, sugary foods like and caffeine, so sodas and and 
candies, how they um, hurt the sleep cycle. Uh, I was kind of fascinated. Are there foods that you would say can help uh, the sleep cycle and aid you in, in falling asleep on time? Mm-hmm. So the well-known one that people like to suggest is red wine will help you fall asleep. And I'm here to break it to you that that's actually not true. Well, the truth in it is that it, it can help you fall asleep, but it's going to give you really fragmented and poor sleep. So um, there's some um, uh, other suggestions. So anything that um, might lead to melatonin should help you fall asleep, right? So certain things that contain tryptophan can be broken down into precursors that make melatonin. And you generally have heard that melatonin is good for your sleep and you can buy it over the counter. But I would say, why eat these foods to get to, down to the melatonin instead of just going to the um, drugstore and buying some melatonin if that's your objective? So, for instance, there's some teas that have something in it that might help you get melaton- more, mel- more of your own natural melatonin. But why not just take the melatonin and, and be able to predict when your body's going to be actually processing it versus, mm, I'm going to take a precursor and a cup of tea, and that's got to break down in my system and become the melatonin when you could just take melatonin. Yeah, that I guess that kind of jumps to one of my later questions as well. So you would recommend mel- melatonin for, uh, say, insomniacs or people that feel like they're not reaching their, their maximum sleep time? I wasn't really sure on how accurate, you know, the use of melatonin was. Yeah, I mean, I think the very first thing to do is to make sure that you're practicing good sleep habits and making sure that you're not doing other things to keep you from using your own natural melatonin. And the number one things that students do to hurt their the use of their own natural melatonin is exposing themselves to bright light before bedtime. Mm-hmm. So within that hour, at least the half hour before bed, you need to ha- be in dim lighting and because that's how your brain can release its own natural melatonin. Melatonin has the cool um, uh, nickname of being the vampire hormone, and that's because <laughs> it comes out in the dark. But what do we do right before bed? We shine a bright light, our iPhone screens, into our eyes. And so that's what prevents us from utilizing the melatonin that our bodies already have. So the number one thing is to just utilize the melatonin that you've already been given by being in dim light at least a half hour, if not an hour before bedtime. It's an impractical solution to students who have so many demands and usually they involve screens in order to stay socially connected, which I think is good emotionally, in order to keep up with your academics, which is typically on a, on a screen. But trying to do the best you can to reduce the lighting on those screens is certainly something you can do to help yourself use your own melatonin. Then I would say there's certainly times that either you're struggling with sleep because of insomnia, maybe because of stress, um, maybe because of jet lag, that utilizing over-the-counter melatonin is, is okay. Um, and it's not harmful um, using it according to the directions. I think it's reasonably safe. Um, but certainly know yourself. Some people do report some grog- particular grogginess on nights they use melatonin, so I wouldn't use it for the first time right before an exam. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't get really in the habit of it because that means you're avoiding using, again, your own body's own natural melatonin, right, and that right. should be your, your first line of defense. Um, and <clears throat> I guess a, a follow-up question. So you, you're clearly in support of melatonin. How do you... What what are what are your thoughts on the use of like marijuana and we kind of talked about alcohol already, um, but marijuana and aiding or displacing sleep, how does it affect it? 
That's a great question. It's a really practical question. So there is a lot of kind of you know rumor out there that uh, that marijuana might help you sleep. Um, scientifically, though, we haven't seen the evidence. And, and in fact, at our local or our recent sleep conference, there's been a debate as to whether marijuana for sleep, good or bad. Um, and it's really debated. Um, I would say that there hasn't been a strong sign. There's not strong scientific evidence to support it. So it's possible that it can work a bit like the placebo effect. So if somebody suggests to you that the melatonin, I mean, that the marijuana is going to help you sleep, then your brain goes along with that idea and it helps you sleep. And so that's certainly, I don't want to overlook, though, that that's important. Um, but also marijuana could work secondarily. So if it do- is um, able to help you reduce stress and anxiety, uh, that reducing stress and anxiety is a great way to improve your sleep. So marijuana might not be directly benefiting your sleep, but it's directly benefiting you in other ways that allows you to sleep better, even reducing pain. So we know that one thing marijuana can do is if you've got joint pain or just some sort of um, aches and pains from sports or something, um, if we're able to dampen those symptoms, you'll sleep better. And so again, there's very a lot of different secondary ways that marijuana might be improving sleep. Okay. And would you be able to talk on uh, mental health and the effects of sleep de- deprivation when it comes to that? You know, with college students, this is an environment that's already, you know, strenuous on mental health. But I'm assuming when you add on top of the fact that you're spending late nights studying for exams and all, all of this type of stuff, maybe going out, you know, that might not be the, the best for it. So could you kind of speak on that? Yeah, uh, college-age students are really going through a, a confluence of events that harm their sleep. Um, you've got the stress of classes. You've got the um, just the time management. So not enough time in a day to get all the homework done, often keep a job, um, and then also maintain those um, social relations that and, and family relations that I think are really important to mental health. And so it's important to balance all of those things and something have, has to give and often that's sleep. And so you're working under stress and you're adding um, stressful social situations, stressful academics, and then add to that uh, sleep deprivation. That's giving you um, kind of a bad platform on which to process those emotional challenges you're faced with. So we know that sleep is a time that you're processing the emotions and um, we are able to come to things with a a clean slate or a new light in the morning after we've slept on it. Um, But if we don't get enough sleep, we fail to achieve that. And that will build up over time. And, you know, losing a a half hour here and a half hour there really adds up. And just a month later, you'll find that you're over 12 to 15 hours short of sleep. And that's a significant significant impact in terms of how your brain has been able to process the emotional challenges that you're faced with every single day. Mm -hmm. One thing I remember we talked about uh, last year was you can't recover your sleep. It's like once it's gone, it's gone, correct? Absolutely. Even, Even if you get, say, like 12 hours on a Saturday. That's not going to reset your clock. Correct? Yeah, that's right. There's been some case studies of this and some extreme sleep deprivation that people never get it back. Um, so once you've been sleep deprived and you're persistently sleep deprived in a college environment, that's just adding up and probably doing damage to the brain, damage to your capabilities to form memories. And um, those things can have long lasting effects. Okay. And would you be able to list any other common misconceptions that we have with sleep that you can just think of off the top of your head? Yeah, I guess the one I always turn to is the the one we've already talked about is that you need seven to eight hours of sleep or whatever number you've heard. And the misconception there is simply that we don't know how to measure sleep need Mm -hmm. and that we know it varies a lot across people. The other misconception I would say is that, um, that 
sleep is just a, a single thing. But when you're going through sleep at night, you're actually going through four different stages of sleep. And each one of those serves a separate function. And I think it's important to know that because that helps answer the question of how much sleep do I need or how little sleep can I get away on. And if you think of that each stage is serving a separate function, it's telling you that, well, you know, if you only want one function, you might need a little bit of sleep. But more than likely, you want all of these functions. And that's why the whole night is important. Mm-hmm. If you wouldn't mind, uh, could we go over all the stages? I remember REM sleep. I do not remember the other yeah, stages. I love that. <laughs> so when you first fall asleep, you go into something called non-REM stage one. Really boring name. Um, and it's frankly the most boring of them because it's really just a transitional stage as your body tries to fall asleep. Stage two um, is a form of non-REM sleep that you hit then um, as you're falling into sleep. And it's actually one of the most frequent throughout the night. So even though it's probably a stage that you haven't heard of, non-REM stage two sleep, it's one of the most prevalent. It's about 40% of the night, 20 to 40% of the night. Depends upon which which population you're looking at. And um, that sleep stage seems to be doing something for motor processing. It has these things called sleep spindles in them that are re- these really cool bursts of brain activity that are associated with plasticity or learning. So that stage seems really important to some types of learning. We have slow wave sleep. Some people call that deep sleep. Um, That occurs early in the night, and that's where we see pure memory replay. So we know we're taking those memories and putting them on rewind and replaying them over and over again during slow wave sleep. And then we have REM, that one that most people have heard of. It's kind of commonly known for our crazy dreams taking place during REM. Um, And that happens mostly... Uh, in the last two-thirds of the night intermittently with some stage two. So you go in and out in these 90-minute cycles, and um, I think that's how we're able to process things. And so we begin the process in one stage, and then we take a break, and we go to another, and then we go back to it, and we, you know, with another kind of viewpoint, and we reprocess it, and then we take a break, and then we come back and reprocess it again. And it goes back and forth a few times throughout the night. And you can see how um, that that explains why we need so much sleep, is that we're kind of going back in this iterative process of memories and emotions and all those things that we can um, kind of pull out of our day. Okay. Um, well, thank you for all of this free knowledge today, uh, Dr. Spencer. Uh, I guess my next question for you is, um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you were featured on Netflix's uh, newest documentary, Babies, uh, which I'll admit I haven't been able to watch it just yet. But uh, from my understanding, it's a documentary focusing on the development of babies. Uh, would you be able to tell me more about the documentary as well as your role um, in it? Yeah, so Babies is a Netflix series, and one of the episodes, I think, believe it's episode five, is on sleep. And so there's three different sleep scientists that talk about sleep in infants, and we have a really cool study going on in infants, and that's featured in this film. Um, overall, the series is really a cool and kind of fun way of seeing what that first year of life is like, and it features all different aspects of development, but ours is the best episode, for okay. sure. It's on sleep. I would definitely check that episode out specifically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my uh, last question for you, you know, you're a sleep rock star. So you're also, you have another uh, program on PBS Nova, correct? Um, That's right. Mysteries of Sleep. Uh, would you be able to kind of tell us more about that as well? Yeah. So to me, being on PBS Nova is like the pinnacle of a scientist's career. So uh, I told you, sleep rock star. <laughs> <laughs> so we are on that one. It's a um, show that's going to air tonight for the first time. And it's a various different sleep scientists, again, talking about the mysteries of sleep. But this time uh, we, it shows uh, one of our kiddos. So I think it's like a preschool age kid that came into the lab and they did a lot of filming. He's adorable and did a great job. And a little bit of our sleep science that we've been learning from the 
the preschool age kid, um, as well as some of our older adult work. So we also work on the other end of the lifespan where we can say, okay, now as sleep goes down as as adults age, um, does that impair this function of sleep on memories. And so some of that's in the uh, episode tonight. Um, And then it's integrated with some other scientists that have um, really contributed to our thinking about what we do. Okay. I will update listeners. So it's not tonight. We're recording on Tuesday. Um, This is going to be out on Wednesday. So it will already have been out, but I'm assuming they could probably I bet it will be online for free by then. Online, (laughs) hopefully repeat. So definitely check that out. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Spencer. So welcome. Um, Is there anywhere uh, students, I guess, could, if they're interested in more questions about sleep or interested in, you know, uh, being an assistant in your lab where they can reach out to you at? Yeah, so I would go look at our website where you can find how to contact us. And our website is somneurolab.com. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, You guys will hear from me next week. Peace. Peace.